the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. Okay, let's turn to page 37, and we're at um, Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Yeshua Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, Mary's name in Hebrew is Miriam, and Joseph's name in Hebrew is Joseph. The genealogy having been concluded, Matthew goes on to describe in brief the circumstances that brought about Yeshua's birth. The ending of the genealogy naturally introduces this infancy narrative. Everybody knows what I mean by narrative, right? It's just a big word for story, but a way of telling a story. And so, and does so in a chiastic parallel. What I mean by chiastic is what is spoken of last is put first in the next list. Okay, so it works from, uh, I like to use the illustration of the Russian dolls, the wooden dolls that fit inside each other. You work from outside in and the center is, uh, is supposedly the, the prize. For the genealogy ends by naming Joseph, Mary, and Yeshua in that order. The material that follows begins with Yeshua, then Mary, and ends with Joseph. Now, is Matthew cognizant of that? I think he might be. It's, um, it was very much um, the, the practice of ancient writers to consider form and, and function together. It was very much more of an art. So it is the, it is the pattern of authors to show coherency through form. And this is particularly true in biblical literature. Uh, Davies, oh, the passive verb of verse 16 is now being explained. Remember we talked last time about this passive verb. All the way through the genealogy it says he begat, he begat, he begat, he begat. All of a sudden when it comes to Yeshua it says he was begotten. In other words, it's, it's a passive form rather than an active because Joseph is obviously not the one doing the beginning. Davies and Allison, by the way, this is the commentary that I'm reading for sure. I'm reading other commentaries too, but it's the uh, International Critical Commentary by Davies and Allison, three volumes on Matthew. It's probably the most comprehensive of uh, commentaries. I don't know if it's the best, but I'll find out by the time we're done. Davies and Allison note a possible parallel to the creation account of Genesis 1 through 2 in the structure of the first chapter of Matthew. In Genesis, the catalogs of things created is given in Genesis 1, while the creation of mankind becomes the more detailed focus of Genesis 2. In like manner, Matthew 1, 1 through 17 detail the ancestors of the Messiah, and verses 18 through 25 concentrate specifically on the Messiah as the primary point of the story. So it's like, it's like a, a, a microscope. In, in the laboratory, you start out with a, with a low power lens to get the broad field of view, and then you turn it to the higher powered lens to zero in on what is the real focus. And that's what's, what's happened here. The genealogy has one purpose and one pur- purpose only, and that's to focus us in on Yeshua, even if we can't figure out exactly how all of the questions are answered in that genealogy. Likewise, in both accounts, both Genesis and Matthew, the spirit is active in the creating, begetting process. If this parallel was in the mind of Matthew, then he is once again signaling a new beginning in the coming of Messiah. 
just like uh, Genesis, Prashit starts out with this new beginning. So the birth of the Messiah is in some ways like a new beginning. Mary is called the mother of Yeshua, but never is Joseph called his father. Once again, the purpose is to emphasize the uniqueness of his birth as that from a virgin and through the activity of the Spirit of God. This is not to deny that Joseph acted as Yeshua's father and that Yeshua no doubt honored him as such as the Torah requires. In other words, when Yeshua obeyed the commandment, honor your father and your mother, he most certainly would have honored Joseph and Mary. But Matthew's intention is to note the unique status of Yeshua as the divine son of man whose father is the God of Israel. That's his, we're going to see this over and over again through Matthew's gospel. Now, we, it says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. As I think most of you know, the uh, betrothal in ancient Israelite society, we're not, we're not as certain about it as some may think. You know, we say, well, this is what betrothal was and this is how it happened. I'll even use some of that language. But the more you study it, the more you realize there's not as much information as we wish there were. And the idea is that I think is that betrothal went, underwent some uh, changes, just like uh, marriage uh, procedures have gone, uh, undergone changes in our own society. So it, it, it retained its primary purpose, however, the betrothal, and that was to legally secure a bride for one son. The father uh, uh, who had a son was on the look for his wife. And once he found that one, he wanted to make a legal transaction so that she would be reserved for his son. And so the, the, inter, the, the interaction was between the son, his father, and the girl's father. In ancient Israel, uh, in terms of legalities, the young lady had very little to say about it. Now, in terms of practicality, I think it's quite obvious that the girl had much to say about it if she had a good relationship with her father. Um, if she was estranged from her father, that, that could really be a problem. Could The question is, could the betrothal happen when they were very young? There are some uh, indications that, yes, it could. In fact, there are some indications, uh, particularly amongst, and I'm thinking of uh, rabbinic Judaism, um, there are some indications of children that are betrothed at their birth. Not betrothed, but promised at their birth. Especially by prominent rabbis, to other prominent rabbis. So, there is some indication that marriages were arranged when children were young, as uh, we've spoken. But arranging a marriage may not be equivalent with betrothal, which involves a legal transaction. Typically, as far as the data gives us notice, the betrothal period was for a year before the marriage was consummated. During this time, the bride-to-be lived in her father's house, even though she was legally bound to her future husband. There were disputes, however, how far the legal arrangement of betrothal went. For instance, could the future husband annul the vows of his betrothed? Uh, he could not. But some rabbis even said that the betrothed husband or the betrothed man could annul the vow. But the future husband was required to support his betrothed wife in the event that the year was up and the marriage had not yet been finalized. So while during the betrothal period there were clearly legal ramifications that existed between the couple, the full responsibilities of marriage, including consummation, awaited the time when the couple came together publicly to affirm their vows and then resided together in their own home. It is because of the legal aspects of betrothal, which is called shiduchin in some rabbinic literature as well as erusin, kiddushin is reserved for marriage itself. 
legal aspects of betrothal that a woman legally was treated in many ways as a wife. If the future husband died during the betrothal period, the betrothed woman was treated in some respects as a widow. This explains the actions of Joseph. Though, as Matthew makes clear, Joseph and Mary had not come together a euphemism for sexual relations, they were betrothed, and their legal relationship required an equally legal procedure for the dissolving of the betrothal contract. In cases where the betrothal is dissolved, the woman, unless she is guilty of some breach of conduct, would be entitled to compensation, perhaps the retaining of the bride price paid at betrothal. I don't know if it's still in the law books or not, but I know in some states um, a broken engagement could involve breach of contract. By the way, isn't it interesting that there's nothing in the scriptures that clearly define betrothal? So we see here that... uh, Joseph and Mary were very much in line with the oral Torah of their day, at least in this regard. In fact, it's going, we're going to see that it talks about Joseph being righteous. Righteous in this case meant righteous in terms of agreeing with the established laws of his community with regard to betrothal. And this reminds us our previous discussion before the class began. We have a tendency to view things very uh, like everything is in its little, you know, little pocket. Uh, we think of the Torah as the written Torah of Moses, and rightly we should. But I'm more and more convinced that when the apostles and their communities talked about the law or about the Torah, that they had a broader perspective on it than, than we might think. That uh, they were not making so clear a distinction between what was tradition in their communities in some cases and what was written. Now, I still maintain that the written always must be the master over the, over the oral. And I think we, we find that in Yeshua's teaching as well as in Paul's. Before they came together, in the Greek papyri, the term sunalethane, to come together, also means simply to marry. So before they actually had consummated the marriage. Thus, Mary and Joseph, though betrothed, had not yet come to the finality of their betrothal period as such. Mary resided in the house of her father. Matthew emphasizes this in order to dissuade any notion that the child Mary was carrying was Joseph's child. Once again, the importance of the virgin birth is at the forefront. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. In the structure of Matthew's narrative, the readers are given advanced insight that Joseph does not yet have. The child within Mary is the work of the Holy Spirit. Joseph will learn this through a dream given by God. When Matthew writes that the child was by the Holy Spirit, we should understand this to mean by the power of God. Not, I'm not in any way denigrating the personhood of the, uh, of, the, of the Spirit of God. What I'm saying is, however, the parallel in Luke 1.35 says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And again, I, I noted last week how perfectly Luke puts the phraseology to, to, to picture an intimacy without in any way uh, besmirching this whole uh, mysterious concept of the Spirit of God being the one who caused the conception of Yeshua. Here the Spirit of God is parallel to the power of the Most High. As in the creation recorded in Genesis 1, so here the creative power of the Spirit of God is at work. And I say, as you probably get tired of hearing me say this, this is a mystery. I can't explain it. Um, But, like, if we believe that he is the God of miracles, and we do, then it should be no problem for us to believe that he could do this. 
Isn't God the one who says that he's the one who brings children anyway? You know, in, in our scientific world, it is far more difficult for us to face these obvious miraculous description of these miraculous events. I think it's one of the wonderful things about liturgy when we, we start out on Shabbat and our morning uh, prayers when we say that he's the one who um, brings on the lights, creates darkness. In our modern world, we just think, no, that just happens naturally. We know the sun is in the middle and the earth's revolving around and we revolve around. So we get the day at one point, we get the night at another point, and, and we have explanations for everything. I guess that's what I'm saying. We know exactly how everything works. We can explain it on, on the basis of natural occurrences. What the rabbis keep reminding us is, well, yes, well and good, but God is the one who makes it happen. <laughs> And if it weren't for that, uh, it wouldn't happen. So we thank God for those things, which even though we may be able to figure out when it comes to the virgin birth, what are you going to say? I mean, we know scientifically how an ovum and the sperm of the male come together and, and, and begin to form uh, this new life. At least we think we know. So we could go into all, and, and there are books, obviously, articles that have done this. Like, well, okay, what, you know, was there an X and Y chromosome, and what, 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 was the, what was the issue here, and how did it all come together, and all those kinds of things. Well, that's not in the mind of, of Matthew. What he's saying is it was the work of the Spirit, and we leave it at that. Was it a creative work? Yes. Is every conception a creative work? I think so. If you, you know, if you want to get into the theology of all this, did God create the souls all at the same time? And then he just holds them in some way and implants them into the womb each time a child is conceived? Or does God, each time a child is conceived, create a new soul? I don't, I don't know. You could argue about that and never, never, never come up with... Uh, Maybe with the answer. But, but regardless of that, each conception, I believe, is an act of creative, the creative power of God, which he allows us to partner with him in, which is why it is so sacred and uh, why the, the birth of a child is so important. Verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph obviously is called her husband, which corresponds to the Hebrew Isha, used in the Tanakh to describe the marriage relationship. In Revelation 21, 2, the same expression in the Greek is used of a bridegroom. As noted above, the betrothal period under rabbinic law formed a legal and binding relationship between the bride and groom and required formal dissolution in the event that either party failed to fulfill their obligations. Thus, for Joseph to be called her man reflects this betrothal arrangement. So some people could become, you know, confused about that. It says, wait, was, was he her husband or not? Well, yes, from a Hebrew perspective, he had a legal standing as her man. As I think you, most, most of you know, there's no separate word in the Hebrew or in the Greek for husband or for wife. The way that the, the Greek and the Hebrew speak of this is her man or his woman. And so there's no special there's no special word to denote like we have in English husband and wife, and that's why this is it's, it literally says her man in the Greek as well as that's that's what isha means her her man. 
A question arises as to the relationship of the two participle clauses. Excuse me for being so picky, but that's what we're going to do here. What are the two participle phrases? Those of you that are homeschooling, get out your uh, pencil and diagram this sentence. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her. Those are two participles. Being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her. Okay? So, obviously, those two phrases describe Joseph. Right? Number one, he was a righteous man. Number two, he didn't want to disgrace her. That was the kind of guy he was. Question is, on what basis does Matthew say he's righteous? Is he righteous because he does not want to disgrace her? Or is he righteous on other grounds? And also, he was the kind of man that did not want to disgrace Mary. So, uh, the flow of the narrative as well as the normal meaning for righteous... By the way, the normal meaning for righteous in the apostolic scriptures is what? To do what is lawful. That's what righteous means. We have a tendency sometimes in our, uh, in Christian circles at least, to think of righteous as entirely what the, uh, you know, some would call positional. In other words, justification indicates that God has declared people righteous, correct? So in that regard, one could say, well, I'm righteous. Okay. True. Well and good. But in the Bible, more often than not, and especially in the Gospels and in the Tanakh, righteous means that you live out what is right. A righteous person is someone who does what is right. And that's more than likely, I would say almost certainly, what is being described here. Being a righteous man meant that he lived his life by way of right actions. In Matthew's telling of the story, Joseph's decision to send her away, which is the legal way of describing divorce. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, he will give her a bill of divorcement and, and I have it here, Deuteronomy 24, and send her from his house. And that became the legal terminology, both in the Tanakh as well as in rabbinic literature, for divorcement, to send her away. So it means that Joseph... Being a righteous man was planning to send her away. So, in Matthew's telling of the story, Joseph's decision to send her away is made before he has given the divine revelation regarding the pregnancy. He is righteous because the Torah expects that an adulteress should be exposed and punished for her lawlessness. Oh, yeah, good question. Um, I mentioned at the end of that paragraph, the ordeal of the bitter waters applied only to a woman in a consummated marriage. So... According to the rabbis, it did not apply to a betrothal situation. His personal obligation was first to end the betrothal contract via the prescribed means, which would require a minimum of two witnesses. According to the, the sages of the Mishnah, and I grant that's next century, but if it reflects first century, if a betrothed man discovered that his betrothed wife was unfaithful to him, he was obligated to divorce her on the basis that the Torah said that it was lewdness and that lewdness should not exist within, the, within Israel. Deuteronomy 24 would indicate that if they had come together in the consummated marriage and at that point he had discovered that she had been unfaithful, then there was the death penalty. And there might in fact be the death penalty with regard to betrothal unf uh, unfaithfulness within the betrothal period uh, if the judges so deemed it to be so. 
So his personal obligation was, first of all, to end the betrothal. The subsequent punishment of an adulteress was left to the judges, an adulteress within betrothal and even within uh, uh, consummated marriage was left to the judges, either by bitter waters or by the things. According to the sages, the ritual of bitter water had ceased by the time of the first century. They had basically said, we're not doing this anymore uh, for numbers of reasons. And the sages also say that it was extremely rare, if ever, that a woman was executed for being an adulteress, which some have questioned then. Remember the story of, of the uh, adulteress, um, which in itself has some textual problems. But remember, it says that they were taking her out and planning to stone her. And some have said, how is that possible? That wasn't the common practice in the, in the, uh, in the Second Temple. It may have happened, but at least it, it happened rarely, not regularly. So what would Joseph have done? He would have gotten two witnesses together. He would have said, Mary is, is obviously pregnant. She admits that. And I'm not, the, I'm not the father. Therefore, I'm giving her a divorcement. And then it would have been up to the judges to take it from there. He could have... You know, obviously, if he exposed her fully, the possibility was that she could have been stoned. So here, as, as Ken has said, we see the combination of righteousness and genuine concern. Love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10 and 1 Peter 4. And, you know, it's important for us to remember this. It isn't that love wants to cover up sin. Love wants to try to keep sin as private as possible while still approaching it and dealing with it. My father used to say that as wide as the sin is known, that's how wide it should be confessed. There's no need for someone to get up and confess sin that, that you know, the majority of people don't know about. It is important to confess sin to those who, do, who, who are witnesses of the sin or against whom one has sinned. But the point, that, the point that we see in Joseph is that while he was righteous with regard to the Torah and regard, with regard to what he felt he needed to do as a righteous man, he did not neglect the love that came for, for Mary and his desire not to make a public spe- spectacle of her. Now, if that happened by others, that was up to them, but that was not his desire. Joseph acts upon what he knows to be true, what the Torah requires, yet his love for Mary is combined with his knowledge that she and, we presume, her family were known as righteous people. Her pregnancy, therefore, left many unanswered questions. And as such, he determines to keep the matter as private as possible. He did not want to disgrace her, meaning he did not want a public condemnation. Had he rushed to judgment, the result could have been that Mary was stoned. In accordance with his righteous behavior, he wanted all of the facts before he made a final judgment. Moreover, his affections for her remained constant in spite of what appeared to be her own unfaithfulness. As a righteous man, he was also wise. He wanted all the facts. I mean, it would have been easy to to rush to judgment here. I mean, how else could she be pregnant? Right? There's no other way. Oh, really? And yet yet you had to think, and I know I'm reading two lines here, you had to think that, that he recognized the integrity that Mary had had. He wouldn't have been betrothed to her as a righteous man if he hadn't considered her to be righteous. He wouldn't. Is it possible that all that he knew about her could be swept aside by this one event? A, a righteous man waits to hear the whole story. And it was good that he did, because eventually he did hear the whole story, and it was far different than he could have ever imagined, right? What was the expectation? Uh, wasn't there some expectation generally that the Messiah would be born of woman? Oh, yes. So, But so as we'll it, see if we get there tonight, there's very little 
which is troublesome to some, and I admit it's been troublesome to me at times. There, there's not a history, either in rabbinic, uh, well, at all, in rabbinic literature that is extant, that the Messiah would come by way of a virgin, or that the Messiah would come by way of a miraculous birth, other than what we find in the Tanakh itself. The rabbis were not keen on this idea, unless, of course, they were keen on it and it's been erased from their writings due to kind of anti-Christian uh, polemics, you know, through the, through the centuries. But it was, um, in fact, you know, we'll talk about that more. But know that <laughs> there's not a long-standing sense that, okay, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be in a miraculous way and it's going to be, you know, a, an unmarried gal. Unless, of course, we look at Isaiah 7:14 and, and 9:6 and other, and see it in light of what Yeshua, uh, what what came about through Yeshua. Yeah, it just seems like if if there was some expectation, you know, of Messiah yeah. and you know miraculous birth or otherwise being born of woman, then if if what Joseph knew to be a righteous woman said this is what happened, he might have said, okay, well. You know, maybe so. I mean, you'd be hesitant to, you know, if he's a righteous man and she's a righteous woman and she's making this claim, um, you'd think it would be reasonable for him to say, okay, well, you know, who knows? Maybe so. Yeah. And and, uh-huh. and you would think that his birth was surrounded by, you know, eventually, you know, his birth was surrounded by talk, you know, with sure. Herod and the, sure. the Magi and all that kind right. of stuff. So, um, well, I think in time that that was clearly the case, and we know as soon as as soon as Joseph received the revelation, he believed and received it immediately, with with no question. But uh, as some have suggested here, I. I think there's every reason to think that Mary herself was reeling. It's like, how do, what, okay, let me try to understand this. <laughs> you know, how do I put this all together? How do I explain this to people? Should I explain it to people? So I think we probably have some, some days of time here that uh, all of these thoughts are, are going and coming and, and, and Joseph is trying to figure out what to do. All right, let's go on. But when he had considered this, speaking of Joseph, verse 20, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It says Joseph considered the matter, meaning that he pondered it, weighing all of the matters carefully. And and the word here is not just a normal word. It means to really think deeply on something. This is something that is characteristic of a righteous man. He did not rush to judgment, but weighed the matter carefully. This is what the wisdom literature tells us over and over and over again. The foolish person makes the snap decisions, and the righteous person weighs things, carefully considers, waits to see. Time, you know, I don't know how many times I have said this to people that I've, that I've been counseling. Time is on your side. It's not your enemy. Our impulse is to immediately, especially amongst men, our impulse is just to fix it. Okay, there's a problem. Let's just find a solution, fix it, and get on with it, right? And sooner the better. Well, it isn't always that way. Oh boy, I have some illustrations of this. I won't take time, but I love to fix things, but there are times when I have fixed things in haste and ruined them. I knew I didn't have the right tool. I knew I didn't have the right instructions. I knew I didn't have full knowledge of what I was doing, but I thought, well, I'll just, I can do this. And I end up breaking it to the point where I can't fix it. Then I've got to take it in and pay, pay twice what I would have paid initially to do that. 
And I, I've learned, I mean, I'm thick-headed, but I've learned over time to say, you know, if you, if you really don't, if you're not ready, read more, think about it, consider, it, it, it will be of help to you. It was during the days of such careful thought and meditation that Joseph received the divine revelation regarding Mary. No doubt his searching for answers was often directed toward God himself. Why is it that we most oftentimes, in our search for what to do and how to do it, we first seek out the wisdom of men and only secondly the wisdom of God? It ought to be just become our natural pattern and way of life to seek God. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. The interjection, behold, alerts us that something out of the ordinary is taking place. The angel of the Lord, the Malach Adonai, which could just as well be translated messenger of the Lord. You understand that the Hebrew word Malach can mean messenger, just like the word Angelos in Greek can mean messenger or angel. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. This is the first of four dreams through which Joseph receives divine revelation and instruction. That the Joseph of Genesis was known as the dreamer continues the parallels between the two, for both of them receive divine revelation via dreams, and both have no doubt that the dreams are from God. In our story, the angel appears only to deliver the divine message, which is clear and to the point. There is no mystical message or hidden imagery. You know, it isn't that, well, you know, this angel appeared to me and I, you know, I saw this box in the sky and, and it was floating down and uh, that's all I saw. And I, boy, I'm really trying to figure out what that means. It, it wasn't that at all. The angel came with a message. And here it is. Words that were very clear and understandable. He addresses Joseph as the son of David, not as the son of Jacob. We've just gotten through this genealogy and it says that Joseph was the son of Jacob. Every other time that Matthew uses the title Son of David, he does so in reference to Yeshua. This being the case, it seems obvious that Matthew's use of it here is to emphasize the legal status of Yeshua as descended from the line of David. In the very place where Joseph is informed that the child within Mary is the product of the Holy Spirit, he is addressed by a name which ties him back to the Davidic line and thus reinforces the fact that though Yeshua is not physically Joseph's offspring, he is still legally his and thus is likewise of the tribe of Judah and the house of David. Moreover, it is clear that for Matthew, son of David has taken on messianic overtones. In chapter 12, verse 23 of Matthew, the crowds question whether Yeshua could be the son of David. They say, is it possible this is the son of David? And the Pharisee leaders attempt to dissuade them from such a conclusion by discounting the miraculous healings performed by Yeshua. Of note is the fact that they do not attempt to discredit his Davidic lineage on the basis of his family line. At least not yet. Furthermore, it should be noted that often the use of son of David in reference to Yeshua is in the context of his healing ministry. You know, those who are in need of healing call out, son of David, you know, help me or whatever. In which which such miracles are given as the authentication of his messianic role. Remember what he said to John the Baptist when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Yeshua? He was in prison. He said, tell us, are you the one or do we wait for another? What did Yeshua say? The blind see... The lame walk, right? So the healing uh, uh, miracles of Yeshua were given to authenticate that he, in fact, was the promised Messiah who would, would come and do these things. As is often the case when God makes himself known via direct revelation, the message is, do not fear. These are the words of the messenger of God to Joseph. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why would, why would he have feared to? Why would he have feared initially to take Mary as his wife? 
Yeah, because he was a righteous man. And he was going to be he was going to commit himself to someone who had already proven herself to be unfaithful? That's something a fool would do. So God says, No, don't fear to take Mary for your wife. Joseph's desire to act righteously would would not be compromised by taking Mary as his wife. The idea of taking a wife is parallel in the Hebrew, lakach, it's the common way it's said. In the first century, this idea of taking may have specifically entailed taking one's betrothed wife to one's home as the final step in the marriage process. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. our modern marriage ceremonies, even if we're doing it as, with some Hebraic flavor, you know, the, the, where did the whole thing get started where the bride is processed down an aisle, you know, or something? Well, it got started in the ancient times. They would uh, accompany the bride from her home, from the home of her father, to the place of the, of the marriage uh, ceremony, which was at her future husband's home. So as she was being, you know, they would come with candles and singing, and they would, uh, at least in some uh, in some regions of Jerusalem, they would carry her on a, a very elaborate litter that would uh, take her through the through the town, and so she would be taken from her father's house to her uh, husband's home. And when it says uh, here, don't be afraid to take her as your wife, it may in fact have that in mind. Don't be afraid to, or don't fear to bring the, the betrothal to its final and proper conclusion. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Here is the crux of the matter. Mary is pregnant, not as the result of fornication, but by the direct act of God. As the Creator who fashioned the first man and woman, so in this case, the creative act of conception has been performed by divine fiat, by the Holy Spirit. Matthew refers to the Holy Spirit by the phrase, the Spirit who is holy. It's not the common way that we find the phrase Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. Elsewhere, we have the Spirit of holiness, or some equivalent. I don't know what the, purpose, I don't know what the meaning of that is. Luke has exactly the same construction. Um, not exactly, but similar construction in his account. The Spirit who is holy. It's interesting. And when, we, when, we, when we hear Holy Spirit, the, the Scriptures say Spirit of holiness. Meaning what? The Spirit who himself is holy, yes, but the Spirit who makes others holy. In this verse, the Spirit who is holy is specifically detailing the the holiness of the Spirit himself. In other words, the work that he has done is nothing but holy. Now, and I, I, I mention again in the top, uh, second paragraph there on page 41, the use of the uh, passive form. It says, the child... Uh, the child who has been conceived. It doesn't say the child whom he conceived, that would be active, but passive, who has been conceived. Again, we see the mysterious background working of the Spirit of God who, by whom the result is this child who has been conceived. Now, verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. 
This statement to Joseph in the mouth of the messenger of the Lord prophesies the greatness of the one who had been conceived within Mary. Its structure and form conform to a pattern not uncommon in the Tanakh. The name that would be given to the child was indicative of his great work. Moreover, Matthew has been using language and patterns in the immediate context that would have been connected to the text he will next quote, Isaiah 7.14, as proof that the messianic expectation of Israel's prophets has been fulfilled. So I've given those to you in this chart here. Um, here are the phrases from Isaiah 7.14. For the virgin or the young lady will be with child. She will bear a son. You will call his name Emmanuel. We have the same thing. Uh, in the Greek, exactly the same wording, that she is with child, verse 18. She, w- she was found to be with child. She will bear a son, and verse 21, and she bore a son. Same verb, same uh, noun as in Isaiah. You shall call his name Yeshua in verse 21 and verse 25. Um, anyone who was familiar with Isaiah's prophecy could not have missed the, the similar language that was that has brought us to this point the gender of the child in mary's womb is specifically noted to be male a son the one promised to chava eve is the solution to the trouble brought out on by the enemy so i think here we have a clear connection i know i'm making that theological connection but between genesis 3:15 the seed of the woman has now come and uh, if if we want to push it a bit midrashically, we could say the seed of the woman. Why not the seed of the man? So from the very beginning of the story, we have we have this this idea not pounded upon us time and time again, but hinted, uh, demonstrated here and there the way the prophets would do it. That this one was coming of the woman who would overcome the problems that the enemy had brought. The future, you shall call his name Yeshua, acts as an imperative to Joseph. In other words, this is a command to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you, Joseph, will call his name Yeshua. It's, a, it's just like we say to our children, we use a future tense. You will clean up your room, which means clean up your room. Right? So the same thing in the Greek and the Hebrew, the future is used like a command. Um, this acts as an imperative and makes known to Joseph that he is to accept the child as his own. The naming process will affirm this. I noted before that the name Yeshua is from the verb to deliver or save, and it carries the primary mission of the Messiah, that he would save his people from their sins. The deliverance he will bring will be a salvation first and foremost from the condemnation that sin brings. This forensic aspect of salvation is not devoid of physical deliverance, but the one encompasses the other. This has been the prime, one of the primary hang-ups from earliest times uh, from a Jewish perspective in terms of, of accepting Yeshua as Messiah. Why? Because Yeshua is to come and do what? Save his people. And look, the Jewish people continue to be under the, uh, under the uh, hand of Rome in the 2nd century. In the 3rd century, they're even worse, dispersed, so forth and so on. Now look, are, is, the Jewish people are still, is there peace in the world? No. Is there, uh, is there prosperity for Israel? No. And the conclusion must be then what? Yeshua is not the Messiah. He didn't do what the Messiah does. The Messiah comes, subdues all of the nations, and, and uh, proves Israel to be the chosen people, brings people to worship the one true God, abolishes idolatry, brings about peace, uh, does away with war, right? There will, and no longer will they learn any war. How many wars have there been since the time of Yeshua? 
So that's a pretty powerful argument, isn't it? But it says clearly he came to save his people from their sin. And what I'm saying is saving people from their sin is not an either or in terms of saving them from the physical maladies of this world. Throughout the history of Israel, as she lived out the reality of God's covenant made with her, the physical redemption of the nation is always tied to her right standing before God. You understand what I'm saying there? When Israel was disobedient, what happened to her? She was defeated by her enemies, right? She was taken captive, so forth and so on. And what does God constantly say to Israel? If you will obey me, if you will follow my commandments, if you will do as I say, if you will do this and this and this, then I will be your God and you will be my people. I will save you. So my point is, is that God's physical salvation is always tied together with a spiritual or salvation of the soul. We see this in the promise made to Abraham, Genesis 18:19. For I have chosen him, that is Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. In other words, God promised to bless Abraham, right? Well, is he going to bless Abraham and Abraham's seed regardless of what they do? No. Abraham is going to command his children to keep the statutes of the Lord so that God can bring upon them what he promised to Abraham. So that sounds like we got the car before the horse. That sounds like you've got to be righteous before God blesses you. It is not as though Israel's own righteousness attracts God's blessing, but that through God's mercy via the divine revelation of himself, which ultimately is found in Yeshua, he would make Israel righteous in order to bring upon her the blessings he desires. Ultimately, the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah has this work in mind. The Torah, written on the heart by divine sovereignty, brings about a transformation that procures divine forgiveness and brings about his blessing. In other words, before God takes up his dwelling, he makes the dwelling fit for himself. He does that work. That's what Yeshua came to do, to save his people from their sins. Thus, the promise that Yeshua would save his people from their sins includes not only their deliverance from the divine condemnation of sin, but also the final blessing of their deliverance from their enemies and the establishment of an ending shalom also promised by the prophets of old. The two go together. Now, what have, what have people uh, missed? That this was not going to happen all at once. Yeshua on the road to Emmaus um, made it clear that if, the, if, if his disciples had read and understood the prophets, they would have understood this, that it, was imp- that it was required first for the Messiah to suffer and then to reign. How would they have gotten that? Where in the prophets does it teach that? Any suggestions? That the Messiah should suffer first and then he would reign. Where? Isaiah 53 is a perfect example. He dies, and then he sees light, and then he is satisfied. And, and, and by his uh, work, he justifies the many, and so forth, and so on. Well, how early was the rabbinic uh, teaching, or the, uh, the, the uh, you know, Jewish uh, teaching of uh, the two messiahs? We find two messiahs in Qumran, not the same two that the rabbis have. We, we, yeah, and possibly even more. But uh, we find multiple messiahs in Qumran. That's first century or earlier. There's, there's every reason to believe that that was not a huge problem. But on the other hand, Israel was under a lot of stress, right? I mean, <laughs> Rome was bearing down upon her more and more. She was waiting for a Messiah to come and help her. And here was the one who said he was the Messiah, and, and his, his, his prophet uh, John came and said the one that has been promised is here, and everybody says, okay, good. Rome's going to uh, get her comeuppance, and it didn't happen. So you could understand in that regard, if they were taught that, if that's what they were hoping for, why there was a, a huge disappointment and a rejection of Yeshua. 
among other reasons. Now, it says he will save his people from their sins. What constitutes his people? Throughout Matthew, the Greek word laos, which means is translated people, refers to Israel. And this is in concert with the words of the prophets that promise salvation to God's chosen people. But the prophets also teach that the nations would be drawn to Israel and would share in her salvation through the promised Messiah. The point is that the locus or place of salvation is Israel, for it is in the seed of Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. This reality is what drove Paul to emphasize the fatherhood of Abraham for all believers in Yeshua, whether Jew or Gentile, and what explains his metaphor of the olive tree. You see, why is Paul concerned that Abraham be viewed as the father of us all. Who cares if Abraham's the father of us all? What's the point, Paul? Isn't salvation in Yeshua? Yes. Yeshua came to save his people. And his people are those who descended from Abraham. In other words, salvation is directed towards and encompasses Israel. And if you want salvation, you've got to get into Israel. The rabbis had that right. They just had the wrong way of getting in. They agreed. They were right when they said Israel is the one that's going to be saved. So does Paul. All Israel will be saved. So there is not salvation apart from Israel because the Messiah Yeshua is Israel's Savior. That's a hard lump to swallow for many of the, of the Christian commentators. You read the Christian commentators on this verse, and they're constantly saying, wait a minute. He, um, okay, well, it says in, 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 later on in Matthew, I will build my church, my ecclesia. So he must be saying that, this, that uh, he will save his people from their sins means he will save the ecclesia from their sins. And in, in, in measure, that's true if we understand what ecclesia means, what church means there in that passage. But, but my point is this, is that Paul sees salvation as a grafting into a people that has a covenantal root that goes back to Abraham. So the whole idea of supersessionism, you know what I mean by that? The replacement of Israel by the church is entirely out of the scope of apostolic doctrine with regard to how God saves people. You don't replace Israel, you join Israel. That's where salvation is to be found. So it's a whole different way of viewing a very, very important uh, topic. It should also be noted that the words of the messenger of the Lord to Joseph contain a clear and unequivocal purpose for which the child has come, to save his people from their sins. Now here, uh, um, I might get into tr- trouble with some of you, but that's okay. Um, you can disagree with me and I'll, I'll still love you and, and, and accept you. This means that if the child is successful in his mission, his people will never be condemned for their sin. Right? It says, he will save his people from their sins. Okay, here's the question. Was Yeshua successful or not? Okay. Then there's no one for whom he came to save that will be anything but saved. If he came in order to save his people from their sins, and secondly, if he was successful with his work, then everyone that he intends to save will be saved. Okay, nobody's mad at me so far. Or to put it another way, he had not come to make the salvation of his people possible, but inevitable. To the extent that he fulfilled his mission, to that same extent his people would be saved. It was this reality that energized the early apostles. For having witnessed his resurrection, they knew that he had indeed accomplished his mission. This in turn meant that a host of people beyond number were marked for eternal life. Their sins had been paid for. Everything necessary for their salvation had been done. Armed with the power of this truth, they boldly proclaimed the gospel as the means by which the elect would be summoned to God through faith in his Messiah, Yeshua. That's why Paul says, I suffer all things for those who are chosen. And God encouraged Paul by reminding him, I have many of my chosen in this city. That's 
not how the gospel is preached today by and large. The gospel is preached as though God came to make salvation possible, and what are you going to do about it? What are you going to add to it? But that's not how the scriptures speak. It says he will save his people from their sins, not he will make salvation from their sins possible. If you want, uh, if you want to read the classic little book on this, you can read John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied where he outlines theologically from a Christian, very Christian perspective, but a good perspective, this aspect that Yeshua accomplished something at the cross, that he actually made a purchase, that he ascended on high knowing that he had a people who were his own and nothing could stand between what he had done and their eternal salvation. Nothing. This is what is meant when he says, I will build my ecclesia, and even the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Nothing will stand in the way of Yeshua receiving all that he purchased through his death and resurrection, ascension and intercession. By the way, that was also the same thing that energized the fathers of what the so-called modern missions. Did you know that? William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor. All of them held this very strongly to be the reason why they were going. They were assured success. Why? Well, because God had promised he would call people from every nation, kindred, and tongue. And Yeshua had already said he would save them from their sins. The work was already done. They just had to go and and give the gospel. And the Spirit of God would energize the hearts that he had chosen and would bring them to salvation. And in spite of the fact that you take somebody like Adonai Judson, who went for 10 years and saw not one person come to faith in the Messiah. Not one person in 10 years. In the meantime, he's lost how many children? I forget how many children died. I think his wife died during that time. He came home and got all kinds of encouragement from the mission board. You know what kind of encouragement he got? He said, you know, if God wants to save those people, he'll save them without your help. What did he do? He went back. And you can read in his own journals, in his own writings. Why? He said, because he knew, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that God, through Yeshua, through Jesus, had paid the price for their sins and that they needed to hear the gospel in order to receive what had already been done for them. And we know, of course, that um, his work was very fruitful in the end along with others who followed him. I think one of the reasons that we have such low success, so to speak, in modern missions today is because we've lost the reality of this assurance. He will save his, his people, his people from their sins. Okay, finally, the statement promising salvation from sin emphasizes that there is future reckoning in regard to sin. The modern notion that if there is a divine being, he is far too benevolent to punish sinners for their transgressions against him and against their fellow men is false. The God of the universe is a three times holy God, and his justice and righteousness demand that the debt of sin be paid. There is a judgment coming. What do the uh, epistles say it will be like in the days of Noah? They will be eating, dining, having their good times, and all of a sudden, destruction will come upon them. Our modern world is being uh, anesthetized, especially Western world, into thinking that, you know, boy, this religious thing about a future judgment, about God being righteous, it's all just, uh, that's just, boy, we can finally be done with that. We have grown into the enlightened age where we all recognize that there's good in all of us, and everybody has their own way and their own path, and together we will find immortality. It's hogwash. Moreover, in our postmodern world, the idea that there exist eternal and universal standards of righteousness and unrighteousness – 
has been overturned in favor of relativism. Of course, if such were the case, there is no need for salvation from sin, since sin can only be defined by each individual. As each individual defines for himself or herself what constitutes sin, it is also within the ability of each one to overcome such sin and establish one's own righteousness, since this too is self-defined. Right? You can't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. If it's wrong for you, fine, it's wrong for you, but you can't tell me what's right and wrong. As I've said before, what I've heard from people who are doing evangelism on, on college campuses is that they don't get any arguments anymore. People say, oh, does that work for you? Fine, great. I'm glad you have religion. That's good. Good for you. I encourage you in that. Tell me more about your religion because I like to know about all religions. In reality, this single statement, he will save his people from their sins, summarizes the mission of the child. It destroys such notions as postmodern philosophy. For he came to save his people from their sins, meaning that sin has a divine definition and that all who bear their own sins face divine condemnation. Still true, even if we say it's not. Verses 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The divine revelation to Joseph regarding the child Mary would bear is understood by Matthew to be in harmony with the prophetic promise of the Messiah. By using the phrase, all this took place, Matthew emphasizes the overarching divine providence by which all of the events were set into place to bring about the incarnation of our master. Moreover, the words of the prophet are in reality the words of the Lord himself, spoken by him. It says, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, not what the prophet spoke of the Lord, but what the Lord spoke through the prophet. The prophet is but the mouthpiece of the Almighty. Now, I've given you the, uh, the quote from the Hebrew or the Masoretic text. That's what MT stands for. In the middle column is Septuagint. That's what LXX stands for. And then, of course, the way Matthew has it. I've given you the reading as it is found in the critical texts. Uh, generally, there are some variants, but nothing of significance. And you can see, if you compare them, that Matthew clearly quotes the Septuagint. He makes one change. He says... Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. But the Septuagint of Isaiah 7.14 says, and you will call his name Emmanuel. So what's the di- why, why the difference there? Well, maybe if, besides the fact that there could be some textual variants going on, is it possible that Matthew is not only saying that... that um, the parents of Yeshua would refer to him or know him to be Emmanuel, but that everyone would understand him to be this. In other words, you all will confess him to be the one who brings God near to us. How many of you have ever studied Isaiah 7.14 in light of its uh, quote here in Matthew? A few of you? Some of you? No? You know, it would be so nice if you opened up the rabbinic material and they just time and time again referred to Isaiah 7.14, but they hardly ever refer to it. It's hardly ever referenced, which is kind of strange. Um, You almost think that maybe it's been um, sanitized of something that would have been used by the Christians against them in the 3rd, 4th century? Maybe. I don't know. The use of 714 Isaiah as a Messianic text finds no clear parallels in the early rabbinic literature. 
And for this reason, some have surmised that Matthew's use of it, as well as his emphasis upon the virgin birth, is to be traced to Hellenistic influences. Now, there, there is a huge push on, it seems like in the last 10 years, to downplay or to deny the deity of Yeshua in some ways to undermine the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. I will just say this about the doctrine of the Trinity. I think, as I've said before, it's a Greek answer to a Greek question. I don't think it's a question that the Hebrews were even concerned about, which is why you don't have the controversy coming about until the Greeks uh, pretty much dominate the church in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Do I believe in the multiplicity of the Godhead? Yes. I have no choice but to believe in that because that's how the Scriptures teach. The, 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 The Son, the Messiah, is said to be the Creator. Rashid says God created the heavens and the earth. The Tanakh says God is all alone able to forgive sin. Yeshua said that he would forgive sins. There's all kinds of, of obvious um, parallels in terms of, of, of who God is as he expresses and reveals himself. Do I believe the spirit, the spirit, the Ruach, is in fact uh, divine? Absolutely. Without beginning, without end. Yes. Co-equal with the Father, yes, and with the Son, with the Messiah, Yeshua, yes. Do I have to formulate that in, an, in the Athanasian Creed of the Trinity? No, I don't. And I think the Creed might, in fact, be somewhat deficient. I think it probably needs to be stronger in some areas. But in order to, in, in, the, uh, in the slipping of these doctrines uh, in some circles, there has been a grasping at whatever straw is possible, and it is not uncommon to hear um, the argument that, well, the virgin birth is simply based upon a taking of some of the Roman and Greek myths. Now, is it true that in the Roman and Greek myths, uh, mythology, that they, that they talk about a woman being impregnated by the gods? Yes, it is. Hercules was fathered by Zeus, one of the gods, in the mythology. And you can find... You can find numbers of these. Why does that not have any traction at all with me? Well, first of all, Matthew was a Jew. He wasn't a Greek, okay? And if there's one thing we know about first century Jews is that they did not appreciate idolatry, at least overt idolatry. Do we really honestly think that for Matthew to come up with how the Messiah would be born, he would revert to pagan mythology and idolatry in order to bring it into what he thought was of his Messiah? That is so far-fetched. You know, it isn't even funny. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why would anybody come up with that? So I, I wouldn't spend too much time uh, uh, defeating it. But if, but if, but again, if you want the one of the best books on that whole thing, get uh, Machen's little book on not little book, a significant book, uh, the Virgin Birth of Christ, and uh, I give you the uh, data on that at the top of page 44. Okay, uh, let's go to the middle of page 44. Much discussion has ensued among the commentators, both ancient and modern, over the meaning of Alma in Isaiah 7.14, which your English translations translate as virgin. Some of your English translations may translate it as young woman. The word itself means young woman and does not necessarily denote virginity. Another Hebrew noun, Betulah, may have the meaning virgin. But in some cases, the word may simply mean an unmarried woman without clear reference to virginity. The fact that in some cases, the Hebrew text adds a descriptive phrase such as, no man had relations with her, 
might indicate that the word betulah was not of itself sufficient to describe virginity. In other words, if betulah means a virgin, why do they have to go on and say she was a virgin, a betulah, and she had known no man? So these terms are not as definitive, perhaps, as, as some have tried to make them. The Septuagint of Isaiah 7.14 utilized the Greek parthenos to translate the Hebrew word alma. So we're talking about the word virgin. Should it say... How, how many of you read the, have, have read or read the Revised Standard Version? Any of you? Okay. Well, it was a it was huge flap when Revised Standard Version came out. Does anybody remember when that was? I, I don't remember, but 70s. 70s or 60s. It's huge flap because the Revised Standard Version had the gall to translate Isaiah 7.14, and a young woman will conceive and bear a son. Well, in reality, they had just translated the Hebrew word exactly as it probably should be translated. Well, how did our English translations come up with virgin then from the Septuagint? The Septuagint, the Greek, uses parthenos to translate alma, a Greek term that is most often descriptive of someone who has not yet had sexual relations. Some have suggested that parthenos, like betula, only denotes not married, without clearly suggesting virginity, but a study of the word offers a different conclusion. In each place where the Septuagint uses the term, the context would favor the meaning unmarried and even perhaps, and I think so, virgin. So that's where you have your English translations coming up with virgin. Now, how did Matthew come up with it? He quoted the Septuagint. He uses Parthenos. It may well be that the Septuagint translators chose the word Parthenos, however, for Alma, young woman, because the... You understand what I'm... Are you getting it? Am I going too fast? Okay. The, the Hebrew text says a young woman. This young woman could be a virgin. But it doesn't require... That word does not require that she be a virgin. Just a young woman, probably unmarried. So how did Matthew come up with virgin then as he quotes this? He did it from the Septuagint who uses, which uses a word which means virgin. Okay, so that's how the Septuagint translated it. Question. Could he have been using the common Hebrew way of writing when they say, and, he was, and she was a virgin and she knew no man? Uh, so that it's the emphasis? Well, but, you know, usually in, in English, for instance, virgin means that. So you don't have to add that extra phrase, right? I mean, if she had known a man, she wouldn't be a virgin. So it's redundant. So that, that's the point. That's my point. But let, let, me, uh, let me just suggest maybe how we understand this. Why did the Septuagint translators choose Parthenos? Well, its primary force, Parthenos, means an unmarried woman, a virgin, but unmarried. And this is also the primary meaning uh, of Parthenos. Excuse me. Alma, its primary meaning, is unmarried. And this also is clear in Parthenos being a virgin. For instance, Rebecca is called a Parthenos, a virgin, throughout Genesis 24, where Alma is also used in the Hebrew, meaning an unmarried woman. And the context would seem to indicate clearly that she was a virgin. Isaiah's use of Alma, meaning unmarried, presents a message with an obvious question. If an unmarried woman is to bring forth a son, okay, you see what I'm saying here? I'm not, I'm not forcing now from the Hebrew that it's a virgin. I'm saying that the word clearly means unmarried. If an unmarried woman is to bring forth a son, will this child be legitimate or illegitimate? If the child is illegitimate, how would this function as a sign to Israel? There were all kinds of, of women having illegitimate children at this time in, in Israel's history. Harlotry was rampant. Rather, the force of the prophet's word may be found in the seeming paradox that an unmarried woman would bear a son, and yet this son would be known as le legitimate, not born of fornication. That's the point of the sign. How is that possible, that you can have an unmarried woman give birth to a legitimate son? 
So even if Alma only means young, young woman, it still has the same force in Isaiah that it would if it in fact meant virgin. This understanding fits Isaiah's message perfectly. The situation in which Mary and Joseph had found themselves asked the same question. Though from a purely social perspective, Mary may have been viewed as engaging in adultery against her betrothed, for those who had received the message of God's revelation, that is, Mary and Joseph in this case, the child she was carrying was God's appointed servant to accomplish his will. We must maintain then that while the virgin birth was not something anticipated in the rabbinic literature, though since we have only late representations of that literature, there is always the possibility that it was expunged, through an anti-Christian bias in the later years. Still, it is anticipated, though only through suggestion, in the Tanakh and became clear when the appointed time for Yeshua's arrival dawned. So what I'm saying, and this is maybe will answer your question, Joni, and that is we don't have this big build-up coming where we say, well, there's this woman and she's going to give birth to a Messiah and it's going to be a miraculous different kind of a birth. We don't have this huge... A build-up coming, but what we have is subtle kinds of indications growing and growing and growing until such time as when it happens, then we look back and say, oh, now we see, now we understand. And I think that's what's happening in Matthew. I think Matthew quotes Isaiah 7:14, having now understood and seen this and having witness of what the Spirit of God had done in Mary. And now he began to link all the pieces together. It's almost like any prophecy. You can't understand it until you kind of see it working out. Okay, we're going to uh, probably close off here because we're out of room on the, on the recording material, but we'll continue to take uh, your, uh, your questions. The question I have, Tim, is uh, you know, I can see Matthew is seeing the literature as being a virgin, but how did they get the word virgin from the uh, original Hebrew into the Septuagint? The Septuagint uh, translators felt that this Alma, this young lady, was uh, must have been unmarried and a virgin. In other words, they, they they looked at the context and said, this Parthenos, the word Parthenos in Greek, best fits the use of Alma in this context. And Parthenos means virgin. Wasn't the wasn't the original word in Hebrew just meaning a woman? Young woman, yeah. But Alma means an unmarried woman. So that could include a virgin. It didn't require it to be a virgin, but it could include a virgin. In other words, the word Alma is a broad term, meaning young, unmarried, or no, meaning unmarried woman. Didn't have to do with age. An unmarried woman. Do I answer your question? Okay, so Alma is a broader term. The Septuagint chose one meaning of that in their translation, and that's what Matthew quotes. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.